you want to open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 16, the latter part beginning of verse 29. You no doubt have noticed many of you as you've looked at your bulletin and found the notes that there are no fill-ins this morning. I got booed Friday night. Literally. I just thought we'd do a little something a little bit different. I'm just going to teach through about three chapters this morning and highlight some things. And uh, the notes this morning are you can follow along, but largely they're for uh, they're for your own benefit to reflect on, and as well to use as a basis for conversation in uh, the mini church this weekend. So um, you can just kind of read along and track with me. How many know that God works in mysterious ways? Mysterious from our perspective. Ways that you can't often predict and are wonderful, aren't they? And we'll see this this morning as we look into these chapters. Uh, we're going to meet Elijah. Elijah's, I think, one of probably my favorite people in the Bible. And uh, he is, as you shall see, not unlike us in the sense that he is also subject to weakness and how God works in his life and through his life. We know, of course, that Elijah uh, is, the, is the forerunner before the Messiah comes. Uh, John the Baptist was a type of Elijah in uh, Christ's first coming, and uh, scriptures prophesy that he will uh, come back before the second coming. He appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses. He represents all the prophets Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. This is why very often you'll see reference, the Old Testament is referenced as the law and the prophets, uh, especially by Apostle Paul. And so here, here are the law and the prophets witnessing and testifying to the reality of Jesus Christ on, in John uh, chapter 17 in the New Testament. The history uh, behind this is very, very important to understand uh, God is God is a redeeming God. God is a redeeming God. Everything He does, He does. The goal is redemption, to redeem, to redeem, to restore, to heal. This book is about is a book about the healing of relationships and redemption of relationships. And so we're going to see that reflected in this passage uh, this morning. If you've been reading along with us uh, through the Bible, these, read, these daily readings, uh, we saw that we've gone through a period of the patriarchs up into the, the, the Moses, and Moses transitions to Joshua. Joshua passes off the scene. The judges now take over that period of history uh, recorded in the book of Judges. The last of the judges was who? Samuel. And we saw Samuel come on the scene and he would anoint the first king of Israel who was Saul. Saul would give way to King David, the greatest of the kings. And David would eventually give way to Solomon, his son. Solomon uh, has been noted to be the wisest man to ever live, the richest man to ever live. And it was under Solomon's reign that the kingdom of Israel reached its zenith of its glory and uh, largely it, the, the whole period of his reign was a period of glorious peace uh, and sovereignty for Israel. 
And despite the fact that Solomon was so wise, he made some terrible mistakes, terrible errors in judgment. If you go back into the book of Deuteronomy, uh, Moses reminds the people that, that when, when, they see, when they get a king, when God gives them a king, and now remember, it was never God's purpose for Israel to have temporal kings. Israel was always to be a theocracy. God was to be the king. They were always to look to God and to his rulership. But nonetheless, God anticipated, certainly, there would become a time when the people would want to be like all the nations around them, and they would want a king too, and that's what they whine and cry for. And so God gives them a king. But in the book of Deuteronomy, God gives them instruction. He says, when you have a king, the king is not to multiply wives or horses or all these other resources that typically uh, a king would do, just like all the other kings. This is exactly what Solomon does. Solomon, he, he amassed a harem of uh, 1,000 wives and concubines. Somebody help me with that. I have one wife, and she is enough. A handful keeps me on my toes. I cannot imagine. I, can't, I have no concept, no category for what Solomon did. Many of those relationships were political as a result of political alliances with the kings and nations around it, but still a thousand wives and concubines. And in, in so doing, he, he allows idolatry to enter in and gain a strong foothold in the land of Israel. This is exactly what God said don't do. Don't intermarry with the people around you, and more particularly the king. Because now idolatry and idolatrous worship and, and all the idolatrous practices gain a strong foothold in the nation of Israel. This is going to be the beginning of the end for them. God says to Solomon, because you've done this, I'm going to tear the kingdom from your hands. And so now begins the breakup of the nation of Israel into two, two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom would be composed of ten tribes. They would eventually be destroyed by the Assyrians, who fierce, fierce people would come down out of the north and, and literally uh, take them off, kill them, and uh, obliterate the ten northern tribes. The southern kingdom... Uh, was made up of, of uh, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. The northern kingdom, while it remained relatively intact, would retain the name Israel. The southern kingdom would be called Judah. This is where you get the name Jew from, 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 the, from the tribe of Judah and the very name Judah. So that's where we are. And there's a, then there's a succession of kings. Jeroboam became the king of the northern kingdom, Rehoboam came, became the king of the southern kingdom. And it was Jeroboam who was particularly, particularly heinous in his practices. And those practices would now continue through each succeeding king or, or offspring or son of the previous king. We come down to Omri. And this is where we pick it up in the account of uh, chapter 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, Ahab, son of Omri, became king. Now, Ahab is going to be the absolute worst. As we shall see, he marries a Sidonian woman, a princess, 
pagan by the name of Jezebel. And Jezebel, you know, has to be, uh, she is absolutely the most notorious woman in all the Bible. In fact, her name now is used as a characterization for vile, wicked, rebellious women. And we, we say, you know, you have the spirit of Jezebel, or that woman has the spirit of Jezebel. And that, that implies all manner of wickedness and rebellion that you can think of. So Ahab becomes king of the, of the northern kingdom. Verse 30, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. I mean, things are getting worse and worse. Once you start down that path, once Solomon opened the door, it's very hard. You can't stop it. You don't know where the evil, how it's going to continue. This is why it's imperative that you and I in our own lives guard our hearts. We not, we not allow trifling things to get a foothold in our life because you don't know how much of the, of the territory of your life it's going to take. And so we see now Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. Baal is the, the, uh, uh, he is the, uh, the classic pagan deity upon which all the other pagan deities would derive their sense of identity. He's the, he's the premier pagan god, if you will. And when you read ancient Near Eastern history and you read some of the practices that are attributed to Baal and to his worship, they are, in, they are exceedingly vile, just vile. And so God does not want his people polluted by these practices. And yet here is a king, king of Israel, doing worse than any other king. Now, I want you to notice a word that's used here in the text, verse 31. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam. There were some things that were so deeply entrenched now, they didn't even think about them. Didn't even think about it. He didn't, it was, it was it's just trivial, unimportant. What is it that we allow in our life that we trivialize? We don't really attend to. It's not a big deal. Verse 32, he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did, he did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. There's nobody worse than Ahab. In fact, uh, you might want to note this verse, chapter 21, verse 25. Let me read to you this parenthetical statement. There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. Jezebel is the complete antithesis of the First Peter chapter 3 wife. How does Peter characterize uh, wives in that passage, First Peter chapter 3? Anybody know? He characterizes them as... Come on, ladies, you should know this. 
How does Peter characterize a godly wife? How? Like Sarah, but he uses, he uses a couple of terms. Gentle and quiet. Gentle and quiet spirited. Now, if you don't believe me, go back to 1 Peter chapter 3, ladies, and read it. She's the antithesis of that. She's anything but a godly woman. Jezebel. And we shall see, she is a terrifying woman. She terrifies her own husband. She's intimidated her own husband. And she indeed will intimidate, guess who? Elijah, the man of God. It's imperative to understand how quickly and how easily the spirit of Jezebel can enter in. It is a demonic spirit. In verse 34, we read about a man by the name of Hael from Bethel who rebuilds Jericho. Jericho was a city, if you recall, back in the book of Joshua. It was the first city that the, uh, that the Israelites conquered as they entered into the promised land. Remember that? That city was to be peculiar to, is special to who? Special to the Lord. It was a tithe of the land. It was a tithe of all that God would give his people. And that city was holy to the Lord, and it was to be completely destroyed, never ever to be rebuilt. And in fact, in uh, Joshua chapter uh, 6, verse 26, to ensure the fact that no one would ever rebuild that city, Joshua placed a curse on Jericho. And now things are so bad in Israel that Ahab gives this man permission because Jericho would fall under the purview of his, of his territory, uh, Ahab's territory. He gives him permission to go rebuild the city of Jericho knowing full well there's a curse. It's not to be rebuilt. This is how flagrantly he disregards God and the things that are holy to God. And the curse included the death of whoever, whoever would rebuild the city, the death of his firstborn and his lastborn son. And in fact, that's exactly what happens, the fulfillment of that curse. Now, in chapter 17, we meet Elijah. So the, here's, the, here's the setting. You've got this corrupt, horrible couple ruling Israel, Ahab and Jezebel. The land is absolutely vile and corrupt with idolatry, with complete disregard of God and the things of God. And now Elijah comes on the scene. I believe Elijah, living in that context of that environment, had to be praying. He had to be saying, God, raise up somebody. Like we say, Lord, the harvest is plentiful. Send workers into the harvest. And you know, when you really start praying that, that it's not long before you're one of those workers. And so here's Elijah now, comes on the scene. Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, he goes directly to talk to king, the king, to Ahab. He says, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, who, Ahab, you should be serving, but you're not, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. 
Now, why, why the rain? Why does, why does Elijah, do you think, call for a drought? Well, you have to go back. You remember, remember when, uh, when we had all the plagues in the book of Exodus? The plagues were all, were all targeted against the gods of Egypt. The same thing is true here. Baal is the god of fertility. Now, in order for the land to be fertile, in order, in order, in order for there to be crops and wealth in the land, there has to be rain. And so now there's going to be a contest. The stage is set. Is God God or is Baal God? The people are going to be confronted with a choice. Where are you putting your uh, dependency? Who, who, what are you trusting in? Who are you trusting in? And, it, it, and the, 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 the principle has never changed, has it? It's always the same thing. What are we trusting in? And so there's not going to be any rain. Why? Because, because of Baal. We're going to see if Baal can bring some rain. Now, verse 2 says, The word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, hide in the Kirith ravine, east of Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered ravens to feed you there. Now, Elijah is not to be available. He's already said there's not going to be any rain. He's made the announcement. The rain's going to stop. And you've got to know when it doesn't rain for the first winter or spring that Ahab's going to be looking for Elijah. Elijah's not available. God's got him hidden out. It's a sign of God's displeasure and God's commitment to uh, this being fulfilled. Interestingly... He says, go hide out, and I'm going to provide for you. You'll drink from the brook, and I've ordered ravens to feed you there. Who would have ever figured that one out? Have you ever told God how to get something done? You got it all figured out. You tell God, now, this is how we should do this. Have you ever noticed that he never does it the way you want him to do it? He works in mysterious ways, doesn't he? Who would have ever thought ravens? Ravens are ravenous birds. Have you noticed we have all these blackbirds flying around the last few years? They are nasty birds. They're just nasty birds. And I don't know if they're ravens or crows or whatever they are, but, but they, they just do not have a good temperament. I can't imagine them sharing their food with anybody. <laughs> and you hear God calls the ravens, and he's going to feed Elijah. I just think that is spectacular. So he did what the Lord told him. He went to the Kirith Ravine, east of the Jordan, stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Now, part of this, I think, also, is that Elijah is going to learn to depend on God. He's going to learn to depend on God's provision. God's growing him up and maturing him. I think when he comes on the scene, he's, he's probably not full-grown in terms of his faith. And so God is going to train him in the process. Have you ever noticed that that's true? God trains us as we go. You know, you say, okay, Lord, uh, I, I'm here, I'm ready to go. 
and God puts you through some paces and trials and testings and, and, and teaches you to trust him along the way. Now, sometime later, the, the brook dried up because there had been uh, no rain in the land. And then the word of the Lord came to, um, came to Elijah, go at once to Zarephath in Sidon. Now, this is Sidon, remember, is Jezebel's homeland. Go down to the Gentiles. Go into Gentile territory and stay there. I've commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. Now, the widow doesn't know that she's going to supply him with food, as we see from the text. But God has already arranged that this is going to happen. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to a town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? And as he was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. Ladies, has anything changed? (laughs) Darling, could you get me a drink? Oh, and by the way, could you make me a sandwich too? Nothing has really changed, has it? As surely as the Lord your God lives. Now notice, she's not claiming God is her God. It's his God. I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. In other words, we have no more provision. We have nothing. We're going to make our last meal. We have no prospects for the future. And we're just going to eat our last meal and die. Now, is she, is she, she has no, no confidence, no hope for the future. Isn't that true? We have a great hope, don't we? We have a great hope. You do not know, you do not know when God is going to bring provision in your life. And you don't know how he's going to do it. But we live with that, con- that, that absolute confidence, that hope. God, I know that you promise to never leave me nor forsake me, and you promise as I trust you to meet every need in my life. Well, that brings a terrific amount of peace to a person's life when they believe that, when they absolutely believe that. So God's going to bring this woman to faith in him using Elijah and using these circumstances. He's going to teach her not just to trust in her provision, meager as it is. He's going to teach her to trust in the provider. Terrific lesson for us, huh? Very often we look at our meager portion and we trust in that rather than trusting in the provider who is able to do exceedingly exceedingly greater than beyond what we can think or imagine. Do we believe that? Think about that. God is greater than my circumstances, and he can do greater things in my life than I can even imagine. If I would but what? Trust him. He is the great provider. But so often our natural eyes are taken to our our little provision, our little stockpile, and I think it's interesting that, that God directs Elijah to this woman who has just this little bit. She's going to grow her faith. 
All of us understand, uh, if you've been a Christian any length of time, when you've taken a step of faith and you've seen God provide for you, absolutely, marvelously, miraculously, in every way. And so we're going to see this right here. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. You might want to underline those words. That comes again and again and again and again and again through Scripture, doesn't it? Don't be afraid. I know the circumstances look dire. I know they look impossible. I know that it doesn't look good. I know that you are frustrated. I know that it just looks hopeless. But guess what? Don't be afraid. Don't leave God out of the equation. Don't be afraid. Go home. Do as you have said. But first, make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. How am I going to make this little bit of flour and oil stretch to make a cake for him and then something for myself and my son? There's not enough here. How do I do that? How do I do that? By faith. I do it by faith because God's man said to do it this way. I've got to lift my eyes. Okay, God, here we go. Here we go. This book is full of instructions, isn't it? It's full of wisdom. It's full of direction for our lives. God says, trust me, obey me, and I'll bless you. And most of the time, that obedience requires, quite simply, faith. Somebody said to me, Will God ever give us more than we can bear? What do you think? You think? Should we have a vote? How many think, how many believe that God will, God would never give you more than you can bear? How many believe that God will give you more than you can bear? Yeah, I'm voting with the latter group. Why? Because if He can never, if He gives me, never gives me anything more than I can bear, I can bear it. I don't need Him! I believe that he just he he puts me in way over my head. <laughs> Help! You got to trust him. You got to trust him. And we'll see here in this text, even when you don't, how his gracious hand still lifts you up. That's just mind blowing. He says, verse 14, For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, The jar of flour will not be used up, the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. Would that every congregant would go away and do as the pastor says. (laughs) Make my life a lot easier. So there was food every day for Elijah, And for the woman and her family, for the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. God's word never returns what? Void. It always does what it's sent to do. Now, sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, 
What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? In other words, what have I done to deserve this? Things were going so well. What happened? Is it fair to say that typically we look into our life and something befalls us and we automatically say, what have I done to deserve this? Why this? Why me? The issue is not anything necessary you've done. The issue is God's at work here in this situation, and he's working in mysterious ways that you and I will not comprehend this side of heaven. Paul says we look through a glass dimly. We only see a little bit. Most of us function with what we call keyhole theology. We're looking into a room through a keyhole. We can only see a little bit, and yet we make these grand pronouncements and assumptions Based on the little bit we see. We don't even see all the rest that's going on in that room on the other side of that door. Am I making sense? What have I done to deserve this? It's not a matter of anything you've done or not done to deserve it. It's God who sovereignly chose to do something in your life. Maybe from your perspective, this is a grievous, grievous, nonsensical thing. But it's... It requires faith to embrace God and trust Him and humble yourself and say, Lord, how would you have me respond? What would you have me do in response to this? Rather than protest. It's a natural human thing to protest, to kick against the goads. Rather than say, Lord, I don't understand it, but I know you and I know you understand it. I trust you. Hardest thing for us is to embrace these difficulties in our life. Believing that God has a good purpose. Elijah said, give me your son. He took him from her arms, carried him up to the upper room where he was staying, laid him on the bed. Then he cried out to the Lord. O Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Apparently, Elijah has some questions about this. Elijah needs to continue to grow in faith. Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. Now, here's a miracle that's not only going to mature Elijah, but it's going to mature this widow, this woman's life and her faith. She's already seen God provide food at the word of the prophet. And now her son's life is going to be restored. She's a Gentile. She's not even Jewish, not even Hebrew. And yet here we see God reach out to the Gentiles in the person of this woman to mature her, to grow her up. God is the God of all who believe. Those who are of the faith of Abraham, just all those who believe. And he is the God of resurrection life. The Lord heard Elijah's cry. The boy's life returned him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child, carried him down from the room into the, uh, into the house He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God 
that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the what? Truth. This is the truth. What does Jesus say to Nicodemus? I tell you the truth. This is the truth. She knows the truth. And she's confirmed now. Chapter 18 says, after a long time, in the third year, so the famine goes on for three years. There's no rain for three years. In the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of his palace. Now here's a parenthetical statement about Obadiah. This is, I think, very instructive. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord, and while Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and had supplied them with food and water. Obadiah is a classic example of a good man in a bad place. We live in a, in a, in a, in a world that is full of all sorts of grief and sorrow and corruption, don't we? There isn't one of us, I think, that hadn't been in a situation where you, you're, 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 you live in a neighborhood or, you're, or maybe your own family or, or you work in a place that's corrupted. There isn't anything, any, any place in our life, uh, even in church. The churches are still corrupted, aren't they? Because what? They're made up of what? Redeemed people, but who still are, are fleshly sinners. People get tired. Ah, I can't handle that church. I'm leaving that church. Or I'm quitting my job. I can't work for those people. Or I'm not having anything to do with my family. They're just a bunch of rank whatever. We go on and on and on. But if we keep giving up and giving up and giving up and withdrawing and withdrawing and withdrawing, we cease to be the salt and light that Jesus has called us to be. Here's Obadiah. He's in charge of the palace. A believer in God. A faithful man. Enduring Ahab and Jezebel. You think, I'd be out of there in a heartbeat. Where are you going to go? The grass isn't necessarily greener on the other side of the fence, and you got to mow it over there too, don't you? Great opportunities where we're planted. You have to look with eyes of faith. Be faithful where God has planted you. Don't be quite so quick to abdicate, to run, to flee. Oh, this marriage, ah, I'm out of here. Wait a minute. Don't quit. Don't be so quick to quit. Let God work in you according to his word to see healing brought about, to see reconciliation brought about in that relationship, to see the kids, whatever the kids are, uh, however that marriage has been affecting your kids, see the kids redeemed. I've talked to women over the years and, and, and prayed with them about staying in very difficult relationships. And I told them, you're going to see God honor your obedience and your faith. You're going to see it. And you know what? In nearly every case, we can document and point to seasons, to periods, to evidences, to testimonies. I had a woman tell me last night that in her own family, it's not her, not her, her husband, but her father, her father began to speak the name of Jesus for the very first time. And she was just flabbergasted, just from out of the blue. I said, you just be faithful. 
Just love Him. Just love Him. You're going to see God move and work. So here's Obadiah, a good man in a bad place. God's going to use him. Verse 5, Ahab had said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so we'll not have to kill any of our animals. In other words, we'll kill the animals of all the people, but not our animals. Wicked Ahab. So they divided the land uh, they were to cover, Ahab going in one direction, Obadiah in another. Now, God uses this occasion to bring Elijah to Obadiah. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground and said, Is it really you, my lord Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. Oh, you have to just appreciate this. Elijah's been hiding out for three years. And as we'll see in the text in a minute now as we read it, that, that Ahab is sent everywhere to find him. No doubt, prodded by who? Jezebel. And now Elijah shows up. And he says, go tell your master, I'm here. Elijah's back. Can you just see that this is just so rich? I just, I just laugh sometimes when I read these texts. Elijah is here. Obadiah says, what have I done wrong that you are handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? Now, what do you mean by that? As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear they could not find you. Are you sure he's not here? Because if he's here and I find out, you are really in for it. I'm going to send my wife to visit you. <laughs> but now you tell me to go tell my master and say, Elijah is here. I don't know where the Spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. In other words, you disappeared before, and if I leave you, the Spirit of the Lord may carry you. You're going to disappear, and man, I'm going to be in big trouble. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he'll kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. In other words, don't do this to me. I'm an innocent guy. Haven't you heard, uh, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty in each, supplied them with food and water. Good for you, Obadiah. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah's here. He's going to kill me for sure. Elijah said, as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. You think Obadiah might have gone away thinking, oh man, I hope he is here when I get back. <laughs> Obadiah's got to take a step of faith, right? So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you what? Troubler of Israel. Now why is he calling Elijah, a troubler of Israel, do you think? Because of the famine. In other words, it's whose fault? Elijah's fault. Wait a minute. Who's supposed to bring the rain? Baal. If Baal is so powerful, why are you calling me the troubler? It's as if Ahab was saying to Elijah, you know, you, your very presence of land has made Baal mad. Now Baal won't rain on our land. It's your fault, Elijah. It's a stretch. 
It's so easy always to blame other people, isn't it? It's your fault. It's your fault. It's your fault. We don't look into our own, our own camp. You troubler of Israel. I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. And here's how you've done it. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Is it good for someone to come and trouble your life? What do you think? Do we need to be troubled? I've been known to trouble some lives. In a good way. Someone said to me a while back, and I hear this refrain fairly often over the years, and people say, well, you know, I, I come to your church, and I just want you to know, I, I, when I leave, I, I don't feel good about myself. <laughs> I said, good. It's my job to what? Sure. Trouble you. To stir you up, to make you think. It's not my job to rub people's tummies and make them feel good and say, you're okay, oh, poor baby. It's my job to, to, to make you look and see yourself reflected in these scriptures and to turn you to God and to show you, I need God. I need to get with the program. Do we need that fairly regularly? Yeah, yeah we do. We need to be reminded, huh? We have a ministry of reminding, don't we? How we need to be reminded. So, periodically, I must trouble you. But don't be like Ahab and, and, and say, you know, it's like we don't deserve, we don't need it. No, Elijah turns it right back to Ahab. He says, you have left God. You've walked away from God. No wonder your life is full of trouble. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Bring all the prophets. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. In other words, we're going to see who is really God. There's going to be a showdown here. Elijah went before the people. He didn't go before the prophets. He goes before the people. He said, how long will you waver between two opinions? How long are you going to compromise? How long are you going to sit on the fence? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Make up your mind today. And again, that's a, that's a continual refrain throughout the Bible, isn't it? God said to Cain, what is this you've done? Sin is crouching at your door. Watch out. We see it happen regularly throughout Scripture. Moses confronted the people. Joshua confronted the people. Who will you serve? Decide today. Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, then you must deny yourself. In other words, you cannot compromise. You can't sit on the fence. You've got to make a decision. No playing around. Now notice the next sentence, right before verse 22. What does it say? But the people said nothing. They're not, they're not in a place where they're, they want to make a decision. They're just... They're, 
Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves. Let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull, put it on wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. You know, there's two events I would have loved to have been around to see. The parting of the Red Sea and this. Can you imagine if you were a, you were a, a Fox News analyst? <laughs> and you were watching this and you're recording this. How would you report this? Amazing. And then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. In other words, you guys go first. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them, prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. How could you not? It took him all morning just to keep his mouth shut. And he can't contain himself any longer. And he's just got to say... Have you ever been in that place? You just... you, You can't contain it anymore. You just can't have to say something. He began to taunt them. Shout louder! Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought. Or busy. Or traveling. One commentator made this remark, and I'm not sure how definitive we can be about it, but that where it says, maybe he's busy. One one commentator says, it also translated, uh, maybe he is turned aside. He's in the bathroom. (laughs) Little color for you. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. All day, they're calling out to Baal. They're dancing. They're jumping around. They're cutting themselves. They're sweating. They're bleeding. It is a messy scene. And nothing is happening. And then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he replied, he repaired the altar of the Lord, which is in ruins. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel, all 12 tribes. Now remember, the, the, the nation is separated into two parts now. And Elijah, by taking the 12 stones, is prophesying, about the brokenness of, of God's kingdom. 
With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, laid it on the wood, and then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering on the wood. Now, what you need to appreciate is that they're, they're 1,200 feet up. Mount Carmel's 1,200 feet up from the plain. The water is down there in the valley. So whoever's got to go get the water has got to climb down 1,200 feet, load up the water, bring it back up, pour it into this jar, and then pour that water on top of the sacrifice. Not once, but three times. So he says, then he said, fill four large jars with water, pour it on the offering and on the wood. So they go down, they get the water, they come up, pour it on. He says, do it again. They come out, pour the water on it. He says, do it a third time. I don't know who those guys were that had to go down to get that water, but my hat is off to them. (laughs) They're unnamed, but they are faithful servants. I often tell people, I say, you know what? I single them out. I say, you know what? I I just want to say thank you for all the things that you do that I know about but I also want to thank you for all the things you do that I don't know about. There are unsung heroes, unnamed people, who are faithful to do the hard, laborious work down in the trenches. And I believe that this is an example of that. Faithful, faithful people. Do it a third time. They did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. Now, this is the evening sacrifice. If you go back to the Mosaic Law, there was a morning sacrifice and evening sacrifice. These, these prophets of Baal been danced around all day. These guys got to be exhausted. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, are, you, O Lord, are God, that you are turning their hearts back again. That last statement is critical. It speaks, again, to God's redemptive purposes. Why is he doing all this? In the face of all the rebellion, he's calling out. He's, he wants to turn their hearts back again. You would think, I said, I'm just going to blow them off. What's going on in your life has a redemptive purpose. Write that down. What's going on in my life has a redemptive purpose. God is turning my heart fully towards him. And then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. Now, I don't don't know about you, but that had to be an awful hot fire to burn up the stones and the soil. Can you imagine this white hot laser coming down out of heaven? Cool. Wouldn't that be cool, Bill? He's a laser specialist. Burns it all up. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried. The only thing they could cry, what is it? The Lord, He's God. 
And they do it twice for emphasis. The Lord, He is God. He is God. The implication, there is no other God. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down into the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. According to the Mosaic law, all false prophets were to be killed. Why? Because they would lead the people off into idolatry. They're, they're responsible for it. Elijah said to Ahab, go and uh, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink. But Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. There's nothing there, he said. Seven times, Elijah says, go back. So the servant of Elijah, whoever it was, is going back and forth seven times. I don't see anything. I don't see anything. Elijah continues to what? Pray. He continues to pray. But he does so with confidence because he knows that God is faithful to his word. The seventh time, the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. Well, I see a cloud out there, but it's just about this big. It can't be anything substantial. It's just a wimpy little, weak little cloud. It's certainly not what we need. It's kind of like a few fishes and loaves. How God uses the weak things, the things that are not, the small things. God works in mysterious ways, ways that are not our ways. His ways are higher than our ways. And that requires faith on our part. God, I believe you. I believe that you can work in an impossible circumstance with a cloud the size of a man's hand to relieve this drought. So Elijah said, go tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot, go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose. A heavy rain came on. Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. It's about 20 miles. He beat Ahab back. Now, I've often puzzled over that. Why why is is Elijah in a hurry to get back to where Jezebel is? Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel said, no fooling. Wow, we better repent. Is that what it says? No. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them, the other prophets. So she threatens him. She says, I'm going to take your head off, buddy, tomorrow. Elijah said, just try it. Just try it. No, look at this. How many miracles has Elijah been involved in up to this point? Four? 
Has God done some incredible things? Elijah stood there and saw fire called down out of heaven. He's raised somebody from the dead. He's been fed by ravens. Help me with this one. This poor widow has seen food in her house, miraculously provided. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. (laughs) What's happening there, do you think? Just think about this for a minute. What happens when you're afraid? You run, but you've lost your, you lost your focus. He is, he's been used of God mightily, powerfully, but somehow, for some reason, at this juncture, he loses his focus. And he's afraid. And he goes and hides. Remember, he told the widow, don't, don't be afraid. I think, I think that, you know, no matter how much God may use you and how faithful you are and how wonderful uh, you, you see him working in your life and or through your life, we are always that far away from losing our focus and getting afraid. That's why, that's why the writer of Hebrews says, fix your, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Fix your eyes. You've got to stay with him. Are we going to fail? Yeah, we're going to fail a lot. This is not a condemnation of Elijah. It's not a condemnation of us when we are afraid. It's just reality, and it's a signal to us, I've lost my focus. Why am I afraid? I've taken my focus off of my Savior, my Lord, my provider. I've got my focus on my little provision. The circumstances have got my focus. I've got to lift my gaze again, set my mind, my heart on things above, not on things below. Am I making sense? Fear is always there, crouching at the door, isn't it? So he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the desert, he came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. It's easier to die sometimes, isn't it, than to persist and keep on. Life is hard. Anybody notice that? And we do come to junctures. We say, you know what? It's just easier to quit. It's just easier to quit. And some people do, don't they? I've had enough, Lord. Anybody ever uttered those words? I've had enough. No more. I can't take any more. I've had enough. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. Now notice this. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. What a novel thing to do. Get up and eat. (laughs) Whoa, it's me. Hey, get up. Get something to eat. Come on, let's go to In-N-Out. 
He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals in a jar of water. He ate and drank and then laid down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him, and said, Get up and eat. Look at how here, here he's absolutely despairing. It's all over. He's quitting. He's hanging it up. No energy. He's done. And God comes and lifts him up. God just comes and lifts him up. Anybody ever notice that in your life? When you're just at the end, it's all over. No, I'm out. I'm quitting. It's all over. And somehow, somehow God managed to send an angel into your life and lifts you up, taps you. Come on, get back in the race. Get back in the race. Right? Get up and eat. Something as mundane as that. For the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. Horeb is also known as Mount Sinai. Number of, 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 of significant events happened there, right? Abraham offered Isaac up. God gave the law. God revealed himself to Moses. Remember? Moses said, I, God, I want to see your glory and I want to see you. I want to see you. God says, no man can see me live, but I'll put you up here in a, in a, in a, in a cave or in the cleft of a rock and I'll pass by. You see my backside. You know, you see my glory as I pass by. So here's, here's Elijah going up to the same mountain. Now, this is interesting. It's a little thing, but I thought it was significant. I want to mention it to you. There he went into a cave and spent the night. In the Hebrew, he went into the cave and spent the night. What cave might he have gone into, do you think? Huh? Maybe the same cave that Moses was in when God passed by? Because in the succeeding verses, now God is going to what? Reveal himself to Elijah. Now, I can't be absolutely definitive about that, but I thought it was an interesting note. You go back and you read the notes on this in, in the Hebrew text, and, and you see it's not a cave, it's the cave. A particular cave, presumably. How poetic, how, how marvelous that God would put Elijah up here where he'd put Moses. What a place of privilege. Now recall, on the Mount of Transfiguration, who's up there with Jesus? Moses and Elijah. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? We can adopt that same sentence. God could be speaking. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? What are you doing here in this life? What are you doing here in this church? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. 
After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. All those phenomenon, if you will, only serve to announce God's presence. How often we look for God in the spectacular rather than just realizing that they're just a testimony to His glory and His power, but His voice is so quiet. How many times have we, have we prayed for a miracle or wanted to see great, some great demonstration of power and we open up the Bible and we read a little, a little sentence, a line, a word leaps off the page. A voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He, he, he again, God repeated, what are you doing here? It's not time to quit. I've got work for you to do. And he repeats, Elijah repeats himself. He justifies all that he's done. It's time now to quit. The Lord said to him, go back the way you've come and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha to succeed you as prophet. And then he tells him what's going to happen. And how each one of those people whom he is going to anoint is going to be used by God in God's agenda. And then he says, oh yes, verse 18. Remember when you said you're the only one left, Elijah? No, no. There's 7,000 others who have not bowed their knee. You're not the only one left. So quit sucking your thumb and get back to work. I have things for you to do. God is a God of redemption. He's a God of healing. He's a God of restoration. He's a God that chooses to work in our lives and through our lives. We're going to have our ups and downs. We're going to see great and marvelous things. We're going to have days when we're afraid. But God will lift us up. The question is, will we continue to be faithful? God spoke to Eli back in the book of 1 Samuel in chapter 2. And he said, those who honor me, I will honor. It's no different today than it was back then. Let's honor God. Elijah, we're just like Elijah. God wants to use each one of us in his agenda, in his plan. The question we ask is, what am I doing? Am I being about my father's business? Amen? Father, thank you. We love you this morning. We thank you, Lord, again, for this book called the Bible. We thank you for your instruction, for the wisdom. We thank you that you are the sovereign Lord. There is no other. That you rule over everything. That your will is the very best. Lord, thank you again for these reminders. Lord, how quickly and easily we can be drawn off by this world, our own flesh, deceived by spiritual forces of darkness. Lord, thank you that we come back week after week after week and be reminded of who you are, who we are. And Lord, strengthened to re-enter the battle. 
We praise you this morning. We give you thanks. And again, Lord, we commit our way to you. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. Amen.